The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The history of the Boston Massacre. Why John Adams' actions were inspirational. Attacks on everyone from Ben Shapiro to James Gunn to the press to Elon Musk. And lastly, a special message to anyone struggling with life right now. Irish man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. I'm back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This is, of course, the show exclusive to the Blaze where you come for the accent, but you stay for the principles. I missed you over the last couple of weeks. Um, We've got a jam-packed show for you today. I can't wait to dive into it. We're going to talk about the news of the day, some of the issues, but we're going to talk about it from a principle point of view. And today, to lay the groundwork of what I want to talk to you about later on in the show is I want to talk to you about your history, and I want to share some story with you. I want to share a bit of your history. And I want to talk to you today about the Boston Massacre. Now, of course, a lot of people are probably going, well, John, which Boston Massacre? Are we talking Yankees-Red Sox here? Because, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox are playing as we speak, right? No, I'm actually going to talk to you. I'll talk to you about the the Yankees-Red Sox all day long, but... I don't think you all want to hear about that. I think you want to hear about the real Boston Massacre. I want to share the history of that and some of the events that led up to that. And I want to share a story with you. And I want you to think about some of the individuals involved, the key players of the Boston Massacre. So picture yourself back in 1770. You're living in Boston, Massachusetts. And you're going through all these issues with the British, with the Hessians. The America hasn't declared its independence, and it won't declare its independence for another six years. You're still in the early, early birth pangs of forming your nation. But the issues of today are very much forming how your founders will view and what they will write in 1776 and 1787 and again in 1791. You're setting the groundwork for what is going to be written, for that greatness, for that exceptionalism. So what do we do? What is the important part to take from this story? Well, let's go back in history, shall we? Because what happened in 1770 in the Boston Massacre wasn't just a, oh, it just flared up and all of a sudden came out of the blue and and the Boston Massacre happened. No, there was a lot of groundwork that took place over a long period of time and an erosion of rights that happened over a long period of time. Simply put, what the issue of the day was was how much power the British Parliament had over the colonies. How much influence could they wane over the colonists? How much influence on their daily lives could they have? If you read your founders' writings, you know the answer to that. You read the problems. But let's go through some history, shall we? Because when you talk about what happened on that day in 1770, the story I really want to focus in on, 
You can't talk about that without going back in history and laying the groundwork for what brought us, brought America to that point. What brought the colonists to that point that night? Because there was frustration. There was anger. There was upset. There was fear. There was resentment. That didn't just build over a day or a week or a month. It was building over 40 years. The start of this story... You could pick any arbitrary point in time, but I'm going to go back to 1733. The British Parliament passed a law, and it was called the Molasses Act. And basically, the Molasses Act passed a tax on molasses. And what it was, was it was six pence per gallon of molasses. But if I may use the language of the day, when this act was passed, Britain had two problems. The first problem was Britain in 1733 was a, the same distance away as away from America as it is today. But communication and travel and, and how you would enforce these laws was a lot harder. And all the customs officials and all the people in tax people and revenue people who worked for the crown were mo- mostly based in Britain. The second problem they had was, if I may use language of the day, your colonists back in 1733 didn't like paying their fair share. So tax evasion was pretty rife. So what the British Crown came up with this, you know, great compromise. They said, here's what we'll do. You currently pay six pence per gallon. We'll reduce it by half. We'll get it to three pence per gallon. But what we're going to do is we're going to increase the measures that to enforce this tax. The British hoped, you know, between the less tax, you know, reduction of 50%, you know, with all these new measures to enforce the tax, We'll get more money into our coffers. Fast forward about 23 years. 1756. It's the start of the Seven Years' War. This lasted seven years because that's why it's called the Seven Years' War. And it goes all the way up to 1763. And there's many results and consequences of this war. But one of the biggest ones was the British government was deep in debt. And the British Parliament comes together and it's talking and it's talking about the issues of the day and the seven-year war and these colonists over in America are still causing all these issues. So they decide, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to levy new taxes against the colonies. What they used to do was they used to get revenue through trade and navigation acts. But what they started to do was they used to use taxation to regulate the trade of the empire. Now they started looking at taxes as just to pretty much pay your fair share. You know, if if you wanted to talk about the first socials of the day, you could make an argument of how the British Parliament looked at tax as pretty much the fair share of people of the day. Because in 1764, they passed an act called the Sugar Act. And in its preamble, it, it states, and I quote... It is expedient that new provisions and regulations should be established for improving the revenue of this kingdom. And it is just and necessary that a revenue should be raised for defraying the expenses of defending, protecting, and the securing of the same. You start to see a a psychological change in Parliament of how they view taxes and, and how they view colonies and their people. The Americans didn't like this. They didn't like it for many reasons, and they started to cause issues, and they started to lay the groundwork for, of a phrase that you will hear later on in this story and also history of, no taxation without representation. The biggest argument the Americans had was, hey, 
you're paying all these ta- you're, we're paying all these taxes and you're passing all these taxes over in a faraway land and sort of you know putting us into tyranny and saying we owe you this money but we aren't represented in in parliament they, we're not there we're we're not around what how can we have how can you say we owe you money and we're not representative we should have a voice so this became a major contentious issue it basically what happened was the stamp act was repealed sorry um the sugar the sugar act was repealed and then in 1765 they got a stamp act the stamp act was effectively what said was again put yourself back in the time of the day there were, anyone who wanted to print materials in the colonies you couldn't just go to the local you know corner store you couldn't go to the local mall there wasn't such things they had to print materials on what they called stamp paper and this was produced in London, and it carried a revenue stamp. It was a way of getting taxes. As you can imagine, it didn't turn over very popular. It was repealed a year later. Because, for many reasons, it didn't raise substantial enough revenue for the crown. So you have this, this back and forth of passing all these laws, imposing a, a tyranny on the colonists, the colonists going, Hey! What are you doing? Why are you saying we owe you money? And you're coming up with all these new laws and we're not we're not been representative. We don't have a voice. You know, how would you like it if I just walked up in the street going, Hey you, yeah you, you owe me money. What do you mean I owe you money? I I passed this new law, but we never were told about it. Well tough, you owe me money. What happens then in is seventeen sixty seven is a big year to lay in the groundwork for this story because a lot of laws were passed and if when i read these five laws out to you and just give you the brief synopsis of what these laws are think of your bill of rights and think of what the the groundwork that was been laid so 1767 june 5th they passed the new york restraining act what was happening in new york at this time was there was this big debate there wasn't much of a debate to be fair but britain and the crown said you know what new york we have British troops over there. We need you to pay them. And we need you to provide housing and food and supplies for them. New York said, <laughs> in nice terms, go pound sand. And this was going back and forth. And you've got to pay this. No, you, we're not. And basically, the New York Restraining Act of 1767 forbade the New York Assembly and the governor from passing any new bills until they said, you know what? We're going to agree with the Quartering Act of 1765. There's your first law. A couple of weeks later, on June 26, they passed the Revenue Act. And basically, this placed new taxes on glass, lead, painters' colours, and paper. It also did certain other things, though. So it placed taxes, but it also gave more authority to those who were there to collect the taxes. And it was also gave them more authority to punish smugglers. And it also did one more thing. It allowed you to use a general warrant to search private property for smuggled goods. In seven, A couple of days later, on June 29th, they passed the Indemnity Act of 1767. Basically what this was, one of the big, you know, Britain is really struggling for money at this point. It's deeply in debt. One of English's biggest companies was a company called the British East India Tea Company. And again, that your pesky colonists were really frustrating the British Parliament. Because what they would do is they would get the, the tea from India, they would bring it to England, they would do whatever they do to it, rebox it or whatever, and ship it over to you, and then you would have an impies in, in a tax, a levy. 
And what this happened was it made the tea kind of expensive. And it was like, this led to the Boston Tea Party eventually. And what they found was, you pesky colonists over there, you know, you're not just paying the crown their fair share. You don't just accept, you know, you got to buy British East India tea. What you were doing was going smuggling Dutch tea, which was a lot cheaper. And they went, oh my God, we cannot let the, the British East India Tea Company go bust. If they go bust, we're in a lot of trouble. So what they said was, you know what, we can't have this go bust. We need to, you know, just make compromise. And the compromise was they said no more taxes. Basically, this made the tea from the the, the British East India Tea Company a lot cheaper than the Dutch tea. Didn't go down too well, though, as later history would tell. The next act was passed on June 29th. It was the Commissioners of Customs Act. And effectively, what this did was... Again, a lot of the people, bear in mind, you've got to think of 1760. If you think about this in 2018, you, the issues weren't that big. But a lot of the powerful people, the tax collectors, you know, the boards, were all based in, in England. You know, it was hard to, to enforce laws 3,000, 4,000 miles away when it was probably six weeks in a boat. It's, it's a lot easier today. You just jump on a plate, hey, I'm going to go collect my taxes. But what they said was, we need these new customs boards for the North American colonies. And they had implied five new custom commissioners. And these new offices were eventually opened in ports as well. And they were created with two things. Enforced shipping regulations and increased tax revenue. Fast forward the last law, July 6, 1768. The Vice Admiralty Court Act of 1768. So one of the things that the colonists were very good at... Very, very good at was smuggling. And the British people didn't like this, and the crown was getting irritated. As you can imagine, just just if you just for one second, just imagine yourself, you're the crown, you're the king of England, you're the king of the empire. It's seventeen hundreds. I'm the top dog. If I may use modern day speak, I am the most powerful man in the world. I'm the most I when I have when I talk, I have a bully pulpit. When I talk, people listen. And these pesky colonists over there, they won't accept my laws. They won't accept, they won't pay their fair share. They're smuggling. What am I going to do with them? Well, so what they did was they passed this law. And they gave, they, instead of having courts, they had royal naval courts rather than colonial courts. And it gave jurisdiction over all matters concerning custom violations and smuggling. Now, there's a couple of things that you need to bear in mind about these courts. First of all, they were run by judges appointed by the crown. So, a, speed and f- uh, a speedy trial and a fair trial, mm, good luck with that. Second thing you need to know about it, the judge was awarded 5% of any fine the judge levied. Hmm, do you think there was a bit of a bias there? Do you think if you're sitting there going, you, you, is there a temptation to go, guilty, 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 guilty? Because it, it affects my pay. Third thing, the decisions were made solely by the judge without the option of a trial by jury. Fourth, the accused person had to travel to the court at their own expense, and if they didn't appear, they were automatically guilty. When you, th- when you hear this history, do you start thinking about the Bill of Rights? Do you start thinking about why the founders went through what they did, why they wrote what they did? 
This is the background for what I want to talk to you about the Boston Massacre, which we're going to get to right after this break. Don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about the Boston Massacre when we come back. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. How you doing, Bill? I'm all right, Beck. Uh, You know, I'm hanging in and watching uh, all the chaos. I have some very, very astute observations, so have Stu uh, get his paper out. Stu's not here, but Pat is. Pat! Pat uh, is here today. Excellent. Is that an upgrade, by the way, over Stu? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Stu is like a limp leg that has been (laughs) gangrene for a long time. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. Freedom's Disciple On Demand. On the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. As always, I'm on social media, uh, Twitter, at Freedom Disciple, Facebook, Jonathan Dunn 58 Drop me a message, drop me a comment. Hope you're enjoying today's show. So that's the groundwork. They're the laws that were passed. So think of all the frustration. The frustration in, for the Crown, if, you, if, you wanna, if you're that way inclined, you can think about that. Think about the frustration of the, the colonists, the American people. They were going, you keep telling us we owe you money. You keep taxing us. You keep just thinking about yourself. There's nothing about freedom. There's no limited government. You're telling us that the parliament in Britain can say anything you want, pass any law you want that affects our lives, and we're not represented. All this frustration, all this anger, all this resentment is boiling over. Now let's go to Boston, because we want to talk about the Boston Massacre. A couple of things you need to bear in mind. Just come, just think about this. In 1770, there's roughly 16,000 colonists in Boston, Massachusetts. And there's 2,000 British soldiers. Think about that. That's 18,000 people. One in nine is a British soldier. Just think about that. Just think about how you would feel if that was happening. You know, think of the modern day, you know, George Bush and the Iraq War. How the troops were occupying, how they were occupying Iraq, how they were occupying Afghanistan. Do you ever get close to 2,000 troops and 16,000 people? You ever get close to one in nine? Well, that's the situation your colonists found themselves in. And those British soldiers were there in Boston for one reason. To enforce British law. The colonists kept fighting. They kept fighting back. They tried to repeal laws. They said they were repressive. They were rallying. They were having rallies in the streets. They, the, the phrase, no taxation without representation, was born. Because of the the hatred and the hatred and the boiling and the emotions and the frustration and the anger, some of these and quite a few of these rallies didn't end peacefully. There was lots of skirmishes between the colonists and the soldiers, between patriots uh, who were colonists who believed in you know a free country and 
There was also people over there who were loyal to Britain. The loyalists. And they became consciously very agitated. There was a lot of issues between the two sets of people. They were very divided. What would often happen was the colonists who were patriots, who said, I want to leave Britain, I want to believe in freedom, I want to have a better tomorrow, they would often vandalize stores collecting who used to sell British goods. They would intimidate the store merchants and their customers. They would say, you're, you're helping the crown, you're helping a tyrant. You know, you need to stop. So there's a lot of emotions around the day. Now, we get to March 5th, 1770. Imagine it's late at night. It's really cold. It's snowy. And you're a private for the British Army. And you're the only soldier guarding the king's money, which is stored inside the customs house on King Street. And all of a sudden, an incident happens. An angry colonist join the individual and they're insulting you they're threatening you they're telling you they're going to kill you they're going to beat you up then at some point this soldier this private this private Hugh White fought back and he struck a colonist with his bayonet as you can imagine an inflamed situation just got a lot worse so in retaliation the colonists decided to mock him even more and they decided to pelt him with snowballs, with ice, with stones, with anything they could. Back then, you know, communication, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no phones, there was no cell phones. And one of the things they had back then was a lot of fires. And a common practice back then was if there was a fire anywhere or there was a, a big issue, they would ring, ring the church bells. Well, on this night on March 5th, the bell started ringing, except there wasn't a fire. So you can imagine, just think of yourself, just your colonist sitting down and you're a patriot, you're having dinner with your family, and all of a sudden you hear the church bells, and you normally associate that with fire, with danger, and you come out and you look around and you're walking down the street and you're following other people because they're running to the issue. And you see an inflamed situation and you're getting second-hand information. It gets even worse. You're angry. Maybe you're a patriot colonist who has had their property searched. Maybe you've been put out of business. Maybe you've been had your rights trampled upon. When you see, when you read history, and we, which we've done in the show previously, it's very easy to understand and hate the British they were not good actors. They didn't try and, and rule with a soft fist. They didn't believe in a soft tyranny. They believed in hard tyranny. And the king had his way whatever he wanted. The parliament passed whatever law. Britain did not act like a good actor. And all these colonists were frustrated, were hurt. All these colonists start running into the street. It's cold, it's dark, it's late at night. You hear church bells and you join a scene, which is a full-on mob at this point. The assault on Private White continues. 
and eventually he calls for reinforcements. This situation is getting out of control really quickly, and they're fearing mass riots. And because the king and because of Britain, you know, their priorities are always in the right place, one of the concerns at this point is, oh my God, what happens if the colonists take the king's money? So Captain Thomas Preston arrives on the scene, and he arrives with several soldiers, and they take up a very defensive position in front of the customs house. At this point, it's getting really, really bad. You know, there's a lot of insults. They're throwing snowballs. The situation is getting riled up. Emotions are really high. And a lot of people are thinking, you know what? We're going to see bloodshed this evening. At this point, some people tried. Some colonists pleaded with the soldiers to hold their fire. Other colonists were daring them to shoot. There was a lot of emotion on all sides. There was a... Um, Captain Preston later said, and take this for a grain of salt, because you know it's 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 I don't know how accurate this is. Two hundred and fifty years later, but he later told her a colon uh, a colonist that they they protesters were planning to carry off from uh, uh, Private White from his post and probably murder him. That was a quote. The violence keeps escalating and escalating, and. You're, you've got the colonists there trying to say, look, come on, shoot me. They'll throw, they'll throw an ice at you. They're insulting you. You've got other people saying, hold your fire. Don't do anything. Don't fire into a scene. It's getting more and more angry. More and more people are coming. The emotion of the night is getting really, really high. The violence then starts to escalate. And the colonists start, instead of throwing like stones and ice and snowballs at people, they start bringing clubs and sticks. Now, obviously, because it's 1770, of what I'm telling you about, it's 248 years ago, reports of what actually happened next are kind of sketchy. So take this with a grain of salt from the story. But supported, supposedly, something happened. And what happened? Someone said fire. And a soldier fired his gun. We don't know if it was intentional or not. There's then this gap of people don't know whether it was a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes. And then other soldiers open fire. And they kill five colonists. Arguably, the most famous person they killed that night is a person whose name I can never say uh, pronounced properly. And it's a name that should be known in history on a side point. It's a man called Crispus Attucks. Why should Crispus Attucks be remembered in history? Well, he should be remembered in history because anybody who wants to talk to you about black history and white history in America, black history is American history because Crispus Attucks wasn't white. Yet he was a proud patriot. He died that night. And six others were wounded. As you can imagine, with this situation escalating, when the British soldiers eventually open fire, the crowd starts moving away because they egged them on, they egged them on, and then they actually fired. People tend to disperse very quickly. So they disperse and move away from the immediate area around the customs house, but they continue to grow in nearby streets. And then the information filters. What happened? 
what happened? Oh, so the British opened fire. Oh, the British opened fire. And then you have tensions rising up in different streets and it keeps keeps escalating. Captain Preston immediately calls out the 29th Regiment, which again adopts defensive positions in front of the State House. The governor of the day, Thomas Hutchinson, he was summoned to the scene, as you can imagine. And there's a lot of angry people. There's a lot of anger on all sides. And he basically makes a deal from his balcony. He says, you restore order, you all go home, and I promise you this. We will look into the shootings, and it will be a fair inquiry. But now you need to go home. And they did. Within hours, Preston and his soldiers were arrested and jailed. As you can imagine, with an event like this, 1770, it's a lot different. But if this happened today, there'd be Twitter hashtags, there'd be Facebook videos, there'd be Facebook posts, there'd be opinions on all sides, for and against. It was no different back in 1770. The propaganda machine went in full bore on all sides. Preston actually wrote his own version of events from his jail cell, and he published it. The Sons of Liberty's people like John Hancock and Samuel Adams incited colonists to keep fighting the British. The government was determined to give these soldiers a fair trial. The reason they were determined to do this was because what happens if you don't give them a fair trial and Britain doesn't think it? What retaliation will come next? It's at this point I want to stop and actually share the story I want to share with you. If I've done my job correctly, you'll have got a fair chunk of the emotions of the day. If you know about the Boston Massacre, you will understand history. Tensions were high in a city, and five innocent people were killed by British soldiers. Think of today, and think of what would happen. Think of what we would do today. We would all retreat to our sides... We would all get our Twitter hashtags. We would be ready to condemn those soldiers to death. Their crime, they were British. What happened with your founders? What happened with one man I really want to focus in on? That man would become the second president of the United States. You see, while others would have looked at this event and could have continued on the propaganda lines and and continuing on to incite, your founders were men of honor. They did things that were not popular even when it mattered most. At a time in 1770 where it would have been so easy just to say, screw Britain. Screw them. They deserve everything they get. The way they have treated us colonists, they deserve everything they get and then some. It would have been so easy, so justifiable to have this opinion. Except that's not what happens. Your founding fathers were much better men than that. So after these men have been arrested and jailed, They start reaching out to lawyers with loyalist leanings to defend them. No one takes the case. 
couple of months go by, and Preston sends a request to John Adams, pleading with him to work the case. Now, a couple of things you need to remember about John Adams at the time, at this time. He's a leading patriot in the movement. He's the leading voice. He's contemplating running for office himself. Now, can you imagine if you're in the colonies? Think about it today. You're a leading voice in the liberty movement or in any movement. You're thinking about running for office. Would you go represent the Hessians? Would you have the intestinal fortitude, the intellectual honesty to do it, the honor? John Adams said, okay, I'll do it. I'll help in the interest of ensuring a fair trial. But Adams wasn't alone. Adams was joined by Joshua Kinsey II. And he was a member of the Sons of Liberty. And he only joined after he was assured they would not oppose his appointment. Robert Ockmunty was also a loyalist, also joined the team. They were also assisted by Samson Salter Blowers, whose chief duty was to investigate the jury pool, and by Paul Revere. He drew a detailed map of the bodies to be used in the trial of the British soldiers held responsible. Think about that. Think about how popular they would have been. Can you imagine going through that? Can you imagine going through that situation and then having people who are leading voices in your movement standing up for British troops? But it goes on. John Adams said some rather controversial things in this trial. The trial of the eight soldiers opened on November 27, 1770, which is eight months after they were arrested, after the whole event happened. Adams told the jury to look beyond the fact that the soldiers were British. It was irrelevant. He argued that if the soldiers were endangered by the mob, which he called, and I quote, this is not me, I quote, John Adams, a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes, mulattoes, Irish thieves, and outlandish jacktars. In case you don't know what a jacktar is, that's a sailor. That they had the legal right to fight back and were so innocent. If they were provoked but not endangered, he argued, they were at most guilty of manslaughter. At most guilty of manslaughter. John Adams went on. He made his case and the end result was the jury sided and agreed with John Adams, and they acquitted six of the soldiers. It took two and a half hours of deliberation. Two of the soldiers were found guilty of manslaughter because there was overwhelming evidence that they fired directly into the crowd. The decisions made that day suggest that the soldiers were threatened. And they were threatened by the crowd, but they should have delayed firing. That is what the end result of this case is. John Adams, on the third anniversary of the massacre, gave a speech. And in part he said, and I quote, 
The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers procured me anxiety, and obliquely enough, it was, however, one of the most gallant, generous, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of services I ever rendered upon my country. Judgment of death against old soldiers would have been as foul a stain upon this country as the executions of the Quakers or witches. As evidence was, the verdict of the jury was exactly right. This, however, is no reason why the town should not call the action of that night a massacre, nor is it any argument in favour of the government, governor or minister who caused them to be sent there. But it is the strongest proofs of the dangers of standing armies. That is a quote from John Adams. As we go into this break, I want you to ask yourself a question and be honest. Don't answer to anyone else. This is this is not for public consumption. This is not for to get brownie points. This is to be honest. Look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself. Would I have done what John Adams had done? And ask yourself a second question. If I was living back in 1770, and I saw what happened that night, and then I saw a leading voice of the Patriot Movement, John Adams, defending those British soldiers, how would I respond? Would I seek to destroy him? Would I seek to tear him down? Would I cause him a traitor? Would I call him treasonous? Would I target his family? I've shared this story for a reason. Because we're gonna when we come back, we're gonna get to modern day news and something that is happening in your culture that I hope stops. Don't go anywhere, America. We'll be right back. You're listening to Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. I hope you enjoyed that story. Why did I share that story? Because I want to talk to you about the issues of your of the country and of your culture right now, especially your culture on social media. So why have I been gone two weeks? Let me answer that question. So I've been very quiet on social media. I've had some good news in my life over the last month. For the first time in seven years, I've secured a full-time job. I am truly blessed and honored. I had to go through training, and I'm not going to tell you who the company is. Um, it's a very, fairly big company. It's well-known in, in the culture, in the Irish culture. And I don't want any problems, so I'm not going to say who I work for or what I do. But... It's an amazing feeling to be back f- working full-time. Job is tough, the job is hard, the days are long. And the last couple of weeks, there was just a lot of training and starting a new job and just hadn't any time to record this show. But I s- want to just ask you a question. When I start this new job, 
what do you think I should be judged on? Do you think I should be judged on the work I do? Let me ask you a more pointed question. You all know I live in Ireland. You all know Ireland is hardly a bastion of freedom. What I say is not popular in a lot of parts of your country, let alone mine. Should my opinions on the Constitution matter or be relevant to my job? Should my opinions on limited government be relevant to my job? If my company found out of what I stand for and what I say, do you think I should be punished? Do you think I should have that held against me? Do you think the fact I do a show on my own personal time for no money as a total volunteer to the blaze, when I do speaking, I do it as a volunteer? Do you think if my company found out about that, that I should have you know promotion opportunities withheld from me? Do you think I should be fired from my job because of what I say? I hope the answer to those questions are no. But today I'm not so sure. So I've watched your culture for the longest time, but over the last couple of weeks, I want to talk to you about some stories that I saw of things that are happening that I just I'm finding very troubling. And it's happening on all sides. I know it's it's popular to say, well, it's always the other side, you know. I talk to my friends who are Democrats and like, oh, it's just you know those damn Republicans. And I talk to my friends on the right, and they're like, those damn Democrats, they suck. I hear it from both sides, and like, I see it on all sides. The, the issues I want to talk to you about started about two weeks ago, where Ben Shapiro was targeted yet again. Shock horror, huh? Ben Shapiro was targeted. A person who I have no idea who they are, I'm not ingrained in your culture at all, came out and had the audacity to you know put out a tweet saying, you know, listen, guys, I'm a, you know Democrats. If you think, if you ever want to you know meet a decent person who thinks differently to you, you know, you could do worse than follow Ben Shapiro. Left went crazy, left went out of their minds. Oh my God, how can you support Ben Shapiro? This guy eventually apologized and took it back because, of course, there is no open discourse. But then the attacks on Ben really started because they started digging up you know, some of the stuff he had said. And some of the stuff, it was like when he was 17. I don't know anyone who's at 17, you know, has, you know, who can say today, whether you're 21, 25, 30, 40, 50, and say, you know what, at 17 I knew everything. And I stand by everything I said. I said some stupid stuff when I was 17. Heck, I said some stupid stuff at 21, 25. You're talking to a guy who's one of his biggest regrets is, I defended the Patriot Act. I was wrong. I hold my hands up and I'll apologize to it for till the cows come home. How long do we have to hold things we say that are stupid or wrong against us? At what point can we move on? Because it brings me to the second story. And this is to my friends on the right. So, I like movies. I don't think about movies. I don't care about, you know, actors in Hollywood and what they say and if they're socialists. I don't care. My Their job is to act. And if they can act, I generally don't care. Unless you're, like, a really bad guy. Like, I'm not going to see Al Franken, you know, or things like that. But generally, I'll go see a George Clooney movie. He's a good actor. You know, I'll go see Tom Hanks. Good actor. I like the movies. I have no problem. I'm not thinking, well, is Tom Hanks a conservative? 
You know, because I got to be honest, maybe I'm just different because I see the world so different. You know, as a general rule, if I'm thinking about anyone, like even just average people, like conservatives, do, does, does, do you see the world the way I do? It's, it's, for me, it's a safe answer. It's no, you don't see the world the same way I do. Because if you did, there'd be a lot more constitutional, you know, people out there. But I'm not looking at Tom Hanks in the movie going, are you a conservative? Are you a Republican? Are you a constitutionalist? Don't care. Just act. If it's a good movie, good. If it's not, I don't care. But James Gunn got fired. He was the, the writer or director or something of Guardians of the Galaxy. And I like that series. I like that franchise. So it actually personally affects me. People were, you know, saying he's a child molester and no, no accusation was made. But yeah, he's guilty. He's guilty. This is in your culture right now. And he got fired. Now there's proposals to bring him back because, you know, all the Guardians cast, fair play to him, they stepped up. They stepped up and signed a petition saying, you know, we stand with him, bring him back, we want him there. I'm linking those two stories together for a reason. I don't care what people tweet. Well, sorry, I do. Look, if you're tweeting stupid stuff, like, like, let me give you an example. If you're tweeting stuff, hey, you know what we should do? We should get all those bankers and bring back the guillotine. Okay? You know, that's a stupid thing to say. If you're threatening violence, okay. If you're a comedian and you're trying stuff out, I'm not going to find it funny, but I'm, I'm not going to say fire you. Do you want to judge people on the content of their character or not? As a general rule, I want people to be based on if they can write a movie or direct a movie or star in a movie or sweep a road or flip a burger or, you know, do maths. I don't care. Do it on your judge, on your basis. Because that's how I want to be judged. I want to be judged at the company I work for now as what I do. Am I good at it or am I bad at it? And if I'm bad or if I'm okay, how can I get better? I want to be judged on the content of my work, nothing else. I bring you back to the start. Is my opinion, what I share with you, relevant to the job I do? Now, I will say this. if I'm, It's a slightly different story if I'm going in trying to change people's mind. I don't talk politics in my job. I actually devoid it because I'm just never going to see eye to eye with people. But I've worked with people who are flat-out Marxists or thought Karl Marx was just misunderstood. I've had people say that to me. I've worked with them. I don't care. I think you're stupid when it comes to that or I fundamentally disagree with you but if you can do the job go for it I've worked with big union people I don't care do the job that's what it's based upon or is it not this is the culture you have to ask yourself on what culture do you want to live in which brings me to the third story which I'm just going to annoy everyone today I watched the incident with CNN and, and President Trump and the reporter asking questions and then getting banned from future press conferences. This is why I shared the John Adams story, because I'm very uncomfortable with this. I have now watched two administrations threaten the press. I have seen two administrations throw people out of press conferences. It becomes hard because I look at the press and I go, you're a bunch of freaking idiots. Or to quote one of my dear friends, they're a bunch of jackasses. And they are. However, there are principles at stake. So let's discuss what happened very calmly. 
in the with the CNN reporter and Donald Trump. Donald Trump's they basically said no questions. They decided to ask questions. Was she roaring? Was she shouting? No. She was very relatively polite, quote unquote. And he didn't answer. He just kept saying thank you. And then they shuttled them all out. And then she got banned. Would I have done what she do? No. No, I wouldn't. I believe in respect for the office. I believe if if a president says no questions, okay, no questions. I would then ask, well, when can we ask questions? And when can we, you know, have a conversation about this? Now, I guarantee the other thing is why I'm totally different is the questions she was asking, I wouldn't be asking. I'd be more interested in constitutional questions, role of government questions, but that's just me. But do I have a problem with her being barred from future events? Yes, I do. Because, one, I actually believe in a free press. And I worry about this thing, this legal term called precedent. I don't worry that Donald Trump, per se, is going to turn into some dictator. And that he's going to just ban all press. I don't worry about that. I worry about the next guy. And the guy after that. And the guy after that. You've had two administrations now who are hostile to the press. You had Barack Obama who targeted Fox News. And one of its reporters. And you now have Donald Trump who you know is actually you know attacking the media. This is troubling to me because... Two presidents from now, three presidents from now, four presidents from now. What is happening right now? The precedent you are setting and, and accepting that, you know, the press can be kicked out of us, of a White House. Is setting a precedent that you can kick anyone out. And all of a sudden you no longer have a free press. I say this as someone who lives in a country who has state-run media. We also have private media, but we have the biggest media is state-run. Now, for those who I have discussed this with privately, they're going, well, what would you have done? You know, where's the responsibility? You're always talking about self-responsibility. Yeah, I am. The responsibility lies on the reporter and the lies on the, on the, the news network. The news network to kind of go, hey, don't act like a jackass, quote-unquote, to quote my dear friend. We have to believe in self-responsibility. And here's the thing. You have the power of the free market. Even though you don't have a free market in America or anywhere in the world, you still have the power of the market. If enough people stop moaning and bitching about CNN, it would just go away. No one watches CNN. Their ratings are horrific. And I'm not a ratings guy. Their ratings are horrific. A large chunk of CNN's ratings are because it's on in bars and airports. No one's actually sitting down and watching. By the way, I will say this. No one's sitting down and watching Fox News either. You look at some of the shows, they're big top guys. They pull in 2 million people. America is like 330 million people. And 2 million people a night sit in to watch Fox? 3 million people tops? You're clearly not watching cable news or you're clearly not interested in it. So if we just stop talking about it, a lot of these problems go away. But it's the biggest, loudest voices on both sides. I believe in a free press. Even if they don't act accordingly, you just ignore them. Act with grace. And to people who say, well, this is unprecedented. There were questions 
levied at Ronald Reagan that were pretty, really bad. There were accusations. I remember one question by Helen Thomas, who was an AP reporter, basically said, asked George Bush in a press conference, said, you know, you wanted the Iraq war before you even stepped into the office, you know, when you were appointing your cabinet, didn't you? How he dealt with it was totally different. You have the office. Again, this is not an attack on Trump. This is a worrying about a conversation down the road of not what Donald Trump will do, not what Donald Trump will do in the next term if he gets it, if he runs, but who the guy after Donald Trump will do, uh, what the guy after that will do. This is two administrations in a row where the press has been under attack. That is something that should unsettle everyone. Because the press, it, even though they don't, it doesn't really work like this, they're your voice. They should be asking the questions for you. They should be getting information from you. That is the adversary role. You don't want, you know, government and the press in bed with each other. You want them being against each other. You want them kind of, you know, you want a press, if I may be so blunt, you want a press pissing off the president. You also want a press pissing off the Speaker of the House and the, the Leader of the Senate. You want them annoyed, ever who it is, whether it's Democrat, Republican, Conservative, Liberal, Socialists, Marxist, ever who it is. You want the press annoying them. You want them pressing and asking them questions. Because when they ask questions, that's how you get information. And if you're interested in information, you watch and then they get ratings. If you're not interested in information, shut up and stop talking about it. Don't watch. They'll get the hint eventually if no one watches and no one's talking about the two-minute news clip and news interview I did with someone about Michael Cohen. If no one watches it, CNN will get kind of go, okay, no one's watching, we'll, we'll have to talk about something else. Because they need ratings, they need ratings to get advertising, that's the way the market works. Two last stories I want to talk to you about, again on both sides of the aisle. Why are we happy when people fail? I saw two different reactions from two different sets of people about unhappy at people failing this week. Firstly, the news of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Ha <laughs> ha, you see, Facebook lost all that value. Ha 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 ha, sucks to be him, doesn't it? Really? Are we now happy when people fail? Because even if you dislike Mark Zuckerberg, right? I'm not Mark Zuckerberg's defender. I dislike Mark Zuckerberg for a lot of the stuff he does. However, I can't I don't criticize him that much because Facebook in some ways has made my life easier. It's not perfect. I would I would run it differently. I understand people have been targeted, but it's a free service. I've met many of you through Facebook. My show goes through Facebook. It's a it's a really good platform. But forget all of that. Forget all about the innovation. Think of all the employees who work for Facebook. Are we now happy that they, some of them are potentially going to be laid off? Are we now happy that, you know, a load of people, whether, and this is, goes across party lines, by the way, a load of people who had Facebook stock are now a lot poorer today. Is that something we celebrate now? Like, I'm not defending Facebook. I'm asking these questions because I'm going to ask the same questions because I'm asking the right these questions right now. I'm going to ask the left these questions now because of what happened to Elon Musk. Going on to social media, seeing Elon Musk. Uh, there's this new attack on Elon Musk. Well, is was he ever a genius? The guy is a freaking genius. I don't like Elon Musk that much. I think he's incredible. But I, I don't know enough about him to judge either way. But some of the stuff I've heard him say, I'm like, oh, God. But the guy's a genius. This week, Tesla announced it lost an, a staggering amount of money. The company that's never made a profit. 
And everyone was going, ha, 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 What? Can we stop laughing at people failing? I don't, I don't know about you. I'd much rather spend my time cheering people who are successful, who are good people. If it gives you joy to cheer people's, at people's failures, I'm sorry. I think there's something wrong with you. And I think you need to do some self-reflection. I'm not happy with people. Fa- now, obviously, there's some exceptions to this. Like, if, if, if David Duke failed tomorrow, I'd be kind of happy about that. You know, um, obviously within, you know, certain exceptions. But just a general business person, because I disagree with their politics and disagree with how they run their company, I'm not sitting there happy they're failing. This is in your culture right now. It's something to think about. Don't go anywhere, America, when we get back, because I want to just share a personal story with you. And I want to share a personal message with each and every one of you when we get back. Don't go anywhere. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn. On the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. For many, many years, I have been frustrated by people who let pets lick them. I find it disgusting. They lick their butt. You really want that? And this is the argument. I've had people tell me this, and it infuriates me. Oh, I know you're going. What is the line, Chris? The dog's mouth is cleaner. Winner. What? There's no way that's possible. The Morning Blaze. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Freedom's Disciple On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for sticking with me today, America. Hope today's show has given you a bit of history, given you something to think about, just something to contemplate and, you know, self-reflect on. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. I'm all I'm all for disagreements. As always, this show is on every major platform that we can think of. It's on SoundCloud, it's on iTunes, it's on iHeartRadio, it's on Google Play, it's on Stitcher, it's on OmniFM, and it's on CastBox. We release a new show every Saturday at 12 noon Eastern. Please consider sharing it with your family, your friends, anyone who, you know, likes an Irish accent, um, likes principles, likes history, you know, likes freedom, consider sharing it with them. We're continuing to grow, and I can't do it without you. I want to finish up today's show by just hitting two quick points out of the, to talk to you about. Firstly, I want to thank you. Um, and I want to especially thank everyone who's been with me since day one. This show is the... is our, It's our third birthday. It's been a up and down three years. There's lots of... Well, there has been many highs and there's been a few lows. Um, I've enjoyed each and every minute I've got to spend with you. When The last couple of weeks when... I was at work and there was other things going on. I, I missed you. I miss engaging with you. I miss been, you know, talking to you about things. I, I, I miss when you come and tell me I'm wrong and where you, where we disagree and having a conversation. I, I, I'm, I'm just so thankful for each and every one of you that you tune in and you spend an hour and 90 minutes with me each week. You invite me into your house and we have a conversation. So to everyone, to thank you, to... To everyone at the Blaze who was involved in this show, who makes this show possible, thank you to 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 Dom and Glenn for giving me a chance three years ago. I still don't know why I'm still hired, but shh, don't tell them, right? I want to finish today's show by 
just sharing a personal story with you and and maybe only talking to you to maybe one person this might be relevant to. And I want to share it because life is hard. You know, when you're going through tough times, when you're going through adversity, it is really, really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. When you are having problems, and I know this from both sides of the equation, one from trying to help other people, but also from being the person in the adversity, there's very little anyone can say or do. Sometimes it's the most lonely feeling in the world going through this. And you know, when people, you know, if you tell people your problems, you reach out to a friend and you go, hey, having these problems and, you know, they offer some well-meaning advice or, you know, it's always hard to know what to say, but, you know, it tends to always be cliche and, you know, you'll hear things like, it'll be okay, tomorrow's another day, you know, keep fighting, keep the chin up. You also hear, you know, if people talk to you at scriptures, you'll hear, this too shall pass. I want to tell you, while it all sounds like the biggest bunch of baloney when you're going through it, and it makes absolutely no difference to you, it is actually true. It just means you have to learn stuff. And sometimes the battle inside is about seeing how much crap you can put up with and not change as a person. Or if you do change, change for the better. The last seven years of my life have been low after low. I don't talk about my personal life for many reasons, and I'm not going to start boring you with my sob story. But I have had more lows over the last seven years than anyone will ever know. And when you're going, when I was going through those lows, you think a lot of things. You have the emotions, the feelings. But one of the worst feelings I had was nothing will ever change. That this is just as good as it gets. And that what I have right now, if I can just hold on to it, even though it's crap, even though it's really bad, if I can just hold on to it and not lose anything more, I can survive. It'll be okay. And then another kick would come. I'm here to tell you, if you're going through something tough right now, I'm here to tell you, I don't know how long you're going to be going through it. I don't know your situation. I don't know your story. But it will pass. I hope for your sake it doesn't take seven years that it's taken mine to pass. But it will pass. I'm also here to challenge you, if you're going through a tough time, to challenge you to be a better person than I was. My biggest regret over the last seven years in many ways is I didn't dream big enough. I accepted my hand. 
I tried my best to play the hand that I played, but I got so into a mindset of nothing good will ever happen. Because I'd been kicked so much. When you get kicked and you're kicked in the ground, you know, everyone always says, you know, when you get kicked to the ground, you just have, it's all about getting back up. And there is truth to that. It is. I can say I got kicked to the ground a lot over the last seven years, and I got back up each and every time. I'm not saying that's a well done me. I'm saying that as it's not enough. Sometimes when you get kicked, getting up isn't enough. You have to keep striving for something better. And you have to start chasing your dreams. When I speak to people today and privately, it really does scare me the amount of people who don't seem to have a dream, don't have something to strive for, don't have something to get better for. How many people do you know, or maybe you are one of these people who've just accepted the status quo in your life? I don't know how, but we need to start encouraging. Sorry, I can't say we. I need to start encouraging people more. We live in a world where it's so easy and popular to demean people. To be happy at other people's pity. To be happy at other people's bad luck. To be happy at other people's bad news. If you're going through a tough time right now, I'm here to tell you it ends. It might end today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. I don't know the road ahead of you. And there's going to be things that are going to be out of your control. But if you are going through that tough time, try and make yourself look for a dream. There is light all around us. The problem is we don't see the light when we're going through a tough time. It's your mindset. It's like you've got glasses on. Or at least this is what it was like when it was me. When I was going through it. I tried my best to be positive, but I could never be positive about myself. It's why I self-deprecate a lot. It's one of my biggest faults, people tell me. It's my go-to default position. I'll self-deprecate. It's just who I am. There's a long. I can tell you why I do it. There's a long reason, list of reasons for that. And we're not going to get into that today, but it's hard to be positive about yourself. But it's also hard to look at yourself in the mirror and kind of go, you know what? I'm not happy with me. And then actually sit down by yourself and have a conversation with yourself, which is very uncomfortable saying, I'm not happy with me, but I want to be better. Because I have a massive opportunity in front of me. You only have one life. And it's a life that you're not even guaranteed an amount of time. In today's world, it's a lottery to get past the womb in some places. Some places, it's a lottery to live past your tent birdie. 
You're not guaranteed a week on this earth. You're not guaranteed a month, a year, or 10 years. How many people actually act that way? How many people actually, when they leave someone, when they leave their colleagues at work, or when they go, I'll see you, I'm gone, I'm going home for today, I'll see you tomorrow. How many people act in their daily lives when they talk about work or they talk about stuff at home and they go, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll get to that next week. I'll do that next month. I'll start that diet next week, next month. I'll look better next year. How many people put things off? I know I do it. I know I do it and it's because of time. We have to understand there is no tomorrow. You're not guaranteed anything. You're not guaranteed anything. If you're going through a tough time right now, please reach out to someone. Please get help. Please get support. Please know your life has meaning. Your life has purpose. You are here for a reason. I don't know your reason. I don't know what you have to do, but you have a purpose. And I also know, despite all the problems in this world right now, which there are many, you have more opportunities in front of you and more possibilities than you have ever had at any time in the past. If you're having debt problems or you're having life problems or you're having relationship problems, you control them. You can fix them. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying, hey, if you just do this, you know, if you take my magic pill, you'll feel... No. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it is as hard as hell. But that's life and nature's way of saying, how much do you want it? I can relate to this from the gym. You know, when when you're tired and you're sore, I want to be better looking than I am. I want to have bigger arms. I want to be more healthy. I want to be less fat. You know, but I'm tired. I'm sore. It, that's life and nature's when my body's running on. How much do you want? How bad do you want big arms? Do you just want to say you want them? Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to go through the pain? Are you willing to go through the grueling workouts when you're tired, when you're sore, when you're hurt, when you're not in the mood, when there's part of you in your brain going, you know, I really want big arms, but, you know, that sofa's looking mighty appealing. I, I could just go lay down for an hour and sleep. Which do you want? I don't know who this is for, or if it's for anyone. But I felt compelled to share this today. Life isn't easy, but life is filled with opportunities. If you take nothing from this last segment, then you just take this. Just remember... You're loved. I can't speak for your friends. I can't speak for your family. I can't speak for people around you. I can't speak for your online community. I can only speak for me and I love you. And even though I may not know your name, I may not even, I may have never interacted with you and you may have listened for one week, one month, year, one year. You may have listened to me since I was giving interviews years ago. I may have never come across you, but I know something about you. I know one thing about you, regardless of who you are listening right now. 
regardless of whether you're young or old, regardless of whether you're white or black or Hispanic, or you could be the color of the rainbow, regardless of whether you're a Christian or whether you're a Muslim, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a deist, whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're gay or straight or you don't have any, whether you're a male or a female, I don't care, all of that stuff. I know one thing about you. I know one fundamental thing about you. And it's the same for everyone who's listening. You have greatness inside of you. You have amazing abilities inside of you. I know this because I know my God doesn't make a mistake. I know this because it is proven time and time again. The only question that about that greatness is, is whether you will use it or not. It's whether you actually use your talents and get more, or will you bury it in the sand? That is the only question, but you have greatness inside of you. I may never meet you, may never talk to you, but I can tell it to you. You have to believe it. You have to believe. You can achieve great things. You can do anything you want to do. You just have to believe. And also because no one ever says this anymore, you have to be willing to pay the price. You have to be willing to do the hard work. You have to be willing to go through the pain and suffering. If success was like a candy, everyone would get one. Everyone would be successful. It's the people who work harder, who work quicker, who work smarter, who work better, that are successful. It's not just about saying, I want something. It's about doing it. But just never forget, you are loved. And you have greatness inside of you. I hope this show has given you plenty to think about. And I hope you enjoyed the history of the Boston Massacre. Um, If you're a sports fan uh, and you're listening to this on Saturday or Sunday, I hope you're witnessing the Boston Massacre in sports part two. Because it's 12 years since we've had one. Go Yankees! This is where I annoy everyone. (laughs) If I have to the two people I haven't annoyed yet, go Yankees! I've annoyed you too. Um, until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern America, we finish up the same way we do each and every week. For three years running now, we finish the show the same way we do. We salute our police, your police, your firefighters, your emergency personnel, and your vets. You know the men and women who are heroes, not people who wear sports jerseys, but who risk their lives 24-7. Those people, men and women of all backgrounds, of all ages, we salute them. And lastly, I salute you, the great American people. Never ever forget, America is great because Americans are good. That's you. Yes, you. America is great because Americans are good. Until next week, God bless. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.